Welcome into Natchez Glen House Story Season. I'm calling it Season 2, people. Is there really a good reason for that? No, it just found felt like a fun thing to say. I mean, you know, in the days of Netflix and Disney streaming services, you call things seasons. That's what I've learned. And I think to start this season, probably the best person I could have thought of is my friend Joe Lamp from Joe Gardner. Now, here's something Joe doesn't know. Uh, he and I have been like one step removed from each other for quite a long time. And I had this moment where I was doing like media work and then when it took over a nursery. So at some point, Joe, you and I should have had this conversation long ago, probably. And over this time, uh, you've done an incredible job with Growing a Greener World on PBS and, and built Joe Gardner. But I thought the question that I really wanted to ask you to start our conversation is in this time you've, you've been creating content and trying to you know, spread the word of, of gardening gospel, Joe, where do you think we're at it, going into 2020, sort of in a here and now mode uh, with gardening? Do you find people are more interested than they were 10 or 12 years ago? What's the general feedback that you see out there in the world? Uh, I love that question, Steve. Thanks for having me, first mm. of all. And, uh, and it's, it's good to be here with you. And, and I love that question because I think back over the years that I've been, you know, doing horticulture and gardening media full time, which goes back to like 2002 for me. Um, and I remember having a lot more conversations about the question around is gardening dead? Not, you know, how is gardening doing well now? Or at hmm. least, you know, somebody finally adding that to the question rather than just kind of the presumption that I was going to go off into agreeing with them that gardening was dead. And, you know, earlier, earlier on, I was leaning more that way just because, let's face it, a lot of the people, this is pre-social media for the most part, but a lot of people uh, that were into gardening were, you know, our parents and our grandparents. But uh, thank God, thanks to social media and uh, uh, more of an interest in farm to table and people looking to eat locally and try to do some of that in their own backyard or front yard even, uh, you know, we have a whole new life coming into gardening through um, primarily the people that are discovering it really on their own because of some of those other, maybe they're coming in from a side street or a back door because of their interest as a foodie or because they want to be more sustainable in their choices. But, um, gardening is a big part of that. And I don't know that they necessarily realize that when they get into it, but because they like fresh food or they like local flavors or they like cutting down their food miles, suddenly they realize that, well, Hey, one of the best ways to do that is through gardening. And then the other thing is, as we know from our studies with millennials and others that we're, you know, we're looking for more meaningful uh, time spent when we're not working. You know, what are those things that we can do that add more value, not only to our life, but lighten our footprint environmentally or, or more on the do good side. And, and, you know, gardening touches a lot of those bases. So I would say I'm so optimistic about it now. Now we have challenges. There are new challenges coming into the equation, but as far as um, a new wave uh, on the state of gardening, I definitely give it two thumbs up. Yeah, there was that moment, Joe, where uh, we take the G out of HGTV and it felt yep. like television had abandoned it completely. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you, you obviously are intimately familiar with the struggles of, you know, finding sponsorship. Gardening was always looked at as this sort of, well, it's, it's nice and all, but the demographic that it reaches isn't really uh, the most profitable from an ad sales mm -hmm. perspective. Mm hmm. Has that changed at all in, in your way? Because now when you produce content, 
you know, it, it's multiple channels. You know, uh-huh. we're, we're not limited to just typical broadcast or cable television. There, there is social yeah. media, there's YouTube, your own platforms, uh, educational services. Um, how's that sort of business side? Been of it, been for it. Have you seen even companies that in the past were maybe a little bit like, oh no, that's okay. Uh, maybe even show a little bit more interest in it. I have. This is uh, really hits close to home for me because you know, growing a greener world just finished its tenth season slash tenth year on television as you know through PBS. And prior to that, I hosted another PBS show for three years. And prior to that, I hosted three years on uh, DIY Network. And, um, you know, back then, I say back then, again, we're going back to 2002, 2003. Isn't it crazy, Joe, how back then makes us sound old, right? <laughs> but it's not. That's the that's one of the things, uh, yeah. you know, when we talk about the category now, and yeah. you talk about anything that's uh, content-based, I find myself in those moments where I go, you know, kids, back in an ancient time called mm-hmm. 2002, yeah. <laughs> this is how it was. But I think for people that didn't experience it, on maybe even the business side of it, it's hard to quantify just how well, much it has changed and what is really a short amount of time. And and air quote back then, that's that's the medium people had for consuming gardening uh, information was mm. on television because it was pre Facebook and or certainly pre Instagram and all those other things. And YouTube, I'm sure, was out there, but it wasn't really the thing it is today. And so the accessibility to be able to do that. Um, is dramatically different than it was. So people were still, that was back in the day too, Steve, where, you know, HGTV still had the G in it. So there were still a lot of gardening related shows and DIY Network had their share as a sister station to HGTV. So there were plenty of great gardening shows out there and I was glad to be one of them. And then right around that time, within a few years from then, I started seeing those shows falling off one right after the other. And that really came from a changing of the guard through Scripps Howard, that was, you know, HGTV's parent company. And um, they brought in, you know, a a non-guarding group of television people out of New York, and they just decided that they were going to put more money into the shows that were paying higher advertising dollars, which were the home improvement and makeover shows. And there just wasn't a lot of money anymore for gardening or certainly not enough interest from advertisers. There was a dedicated audience, as you know, of people that love their gardening television shows. And as those were going away, that was taking a lot of people off. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, they were all saying the same things. Where'd the G and HGTV go? And, and you know, we really haven't seen that G ever really come back. And um, it's really a money-driven thing. And so I have to think about that too every year. And every year as we come into modern time or current time, I think about it harder than the year before. And that is, you know, how much... How many more years of viability or sustainability does a television gardening show have? I know the audience is there because there's still that generation that came before us that that's what they that's their still preferred viewing medium of choice is television, broadcast television. But even they are slowly evolving to digital consumption of content. Not to mention everybody else coming in with us and behind us that that's really the only way they consume video. And they don't even have a television. So if you don't think I'm not thinking about that as I think about the next season and how am I going to you know, distribute my time and resources and underwriting dollars, I think about it a lot. And so for right now and for the next year or two or three, I don't know, uh, I'm still doing both, you know, broadcast television and creating digital content like crazy. But I'd be an idiot to, to deny the, the trend that we're seeing in front of us. And that is the move towards all digital. Because even with 
television, you can stream your digital content on your television. And it's one of the things in creating content that I struggle with, and it's something I'm sure you're faced with and have been. You also feel it many times, you know, beyond the ad sales side of content creation, but you're, you're reaching out to two audiences simultaneously. You have an audience of maybe a more knowledgeable gardener Mm-hmm. who, regardless of where they're at on the, the demographic age scale, you want to produce content that is interesting to them and provides mm-hmm. value to them, but you're also trying to cultivate new audience yeah, and provide content to people that don't have that level of experience or knowledge. Yeah. It's, yeah. I th- and then the other thing, uh, uh, in speaking to some of the people at BBC with Gardener's World, the conversation yeah. there that people don't know is we're very inside baseball here, Joe, but I think it's a valuable conversation for an audience is producing gardening content. At some level sounds easy, right? Because you're like, oh, what's the big deal? You go out there with some cameras and some people and you take some video. Well, Uh the problem is what happens if the day you have that team to shoot video, that plant isn't doing that thing. You know, you want to produce content about flowering something and it's fall. So it's got more production expenses tied to it than I think most people would realize. How have you found that, 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 that delicate tiptoe between existing audience of people that you want to provide content and value to that are knowledgeable, but also at the same time still attracting new people and, and getting those people at a place where there's content they can consume too? That is the holy grail. And with television broadcast, national broadcast television. So, so you've got certain levels of um, production requirements that you have to exceed once you get, you know, from from local to regional to national and beyond. And so, there's certain production standards you have to adhere to. And so, for you know, a, a high end uh, uh, t- public television distributor like American Public Television, who we push our th- show through, you know, there you just can't go out with your iPhone on a, you know, rainy day and, and create a gardening show. I mean, there are a lot of things about those shows that get viewed by a lot of people and you have to, you know, pass the muster on mustard on every step along the way. So it's difficult from a production value standpoint to get it right with the audio and the video. It's difficult to catch it at the right seasonality. And the, you know, the noise is an issue. If if the, if the lawn crew shows up next door, you know, we've lost entire days because they, uh, tree crew showed up to grind the trees next door. You know, you just can't do that. So um, that's always a frustration. But really to your question about how do you how do you balance feeding people that really are hort heads and really want that good, solid, deep gardening information without losing the seekers, the people that are, you know, don't have that necessary knowledge coming in, but you want to maintain their interest. And that really is a fine balance because with a television show, they say you need to dumb it down to the lowest common denominator, which is like that sixth grade mentality. And then you can't go deep on anything because you're going to lose them. So you have to keep that topic or that segment to no more than like two or three minutes because their attention span starts to wane. And now you need to change up the shots. No, by the way, depending on whatever you're talking about, don't show my face more than 10% of the total time you're talking about that subject because again, people's minds are wandering. So there's a lot to go that goes into really a true production value, high quality television show. And you rarely see that on YouTube. And in fact, when I'm doing 
what I'll call dumbed down video just because. <laughs> Joe, you know, can I share something with you that is really yeah. fascinating? So in um, 2018, we uh, took the, the gardens here of like three acres and we decided, okay, we're doing a flower farm business. Well, for me, one of the things that was really difficult was, was very comfortable in media. You know what I wasn't comfortable with, Joe? Holding my phone at the end of my arm and talking uh, to it. Uh, Not having production value to it felt uh, sort of weird. Yep. Right? You yep. know, you have yep. this moment where you go like, well, but I don't have a microphone pinned mm -hmm. on lavalier. I don't have this. And it is that thing like you're talking about, that it is this sort of, we're almost at this mixed stage of content that's out there in the world, you know, this form of sort of loosey-goosey content and then more higher produced content. Um, so I think it's really interesting that you're sharing that, that there is this sort of balance that sometimes I don't think if people understand from a viewership standpoint, when you're trying to produce content and trying to tell stories, you know, certain times call for column A and certain times call for column B. Mm. I love that we're having this conversation because no one that interviews me for podcasts typically is talking about the media production side. Yeah. But, you know, having been in television in front of the camera and behind it for 19 years now, I can't not think about production value. You know, it's in, it's in my DNA. So when I'm just doing a video as opposed to broadcast television, I can't, I can't make myself dumb it down, even though I, that's kind of what people expect is a more of a raw, organic video when they're consuming it online versus television. And so when we come in with a television quality video, it almost seems weird compared to the rest. Now, that necessarily isn't always bad because it does stand out and it's like, wow, that's pretty high end. But it's kind of all we know. And it's, you got, it's hard to make yourself just use the phone even though that you know phones these days are great but it's still a difference. Yes, completely. And and I think this is the other subject this leads us into. And I mentioned how I went in this nursery production realm. Mm -hmm. And one of the very first things that that sort of startled me, Joe, if I'm being honest, was how the nursery industry was very much a believer in just telling gardeners both new and experience that things were just low maintenance. The, the solution mm. to all things was just to tell them it's easier. And it put pressure on breeders to come out with mm -hmm. more disease resistant, more this, more that. And as I was in that side of the world, it just started mm -hmm. to concern me that yeah. we weren't teaching people how to garden. We weren't telling them that was a necessity. We right. were telling them well, it's our job to somehow make a plant that you just throw in the ground, don't know anything about, and somehow that plant is magically going to thrive and do all the things, and it's going to flower if you want flowers, and if it's going to fruit, it's going to fruit. Have you seen that in, in your travels in you know, the media and interacting with so many people in the Hort world, that, that if we made a mistake in this last 20, 25 years, that, that mm -hmm. seems like a big one. It wasn't curating knowledge. It was just sort right. of trying to make sales by telling them it was low maintenance. That did nothing to promote gardening. All that did was get some of the weekend warriors fired up a little bit and happy that, oh my God, they could, you know, all they had to do was cut their grass and, and they could have those plants that were low maintenance. And I think that came about because 
going back to what we started this conversation with, and that was, you know, we we're starting to lose this guardian audience as they are dying off and as television, as the G was going away in HGTV, it's like marketers or plant people or breeders or whatever say, oh my God, what do we do now? Because if we don't figure something out, we're going to lose everybody. So low maintenance sounded really good because, you know, they felt like people were not wanting to do the work involved. But that is the opposite of gardening. And, and gardening to me, if you're not hands-on, you're not gardening and you're not learning anything. And so to me, the, one of my favorite things about gardening is the hands-on part of it. I don't, want, I don't necessarily want low-maintenance plants. I want to be out there and have my hands in the dirt and around our soil and around the plants. And, um, and I think we've gotten away from that. I haven't heard that term nearly as much as I used to, but for a while, it's all you ever heard. But I think that was a big disservice for helping. If they thought it was going to help promote gardening, I don't think that worked. No, and I think what we also now have is a bit of an issue occasionally that I'm running into that some of the very hardcore collector community of fill in the blank, whatever plant you want to pick on, Joe, that group has aged up. And some of those plants are almost getting lost. Uh, Maybe the most easy one to pick on for me recently has been Gladiola, that even some of these societies that were out there have literally aged out they, they right. just have folded because there was no uh, second wave of people filling in. And how do we, we sort of save that, Joe? And this is a broad question. This is another $10 million question here, Joe, that we had this moment that I think we, we did do a bit of a disservice where we lost some people. And now, as you mentioned, just in this last uh, five to 10 years through social media, I think we're getting some of them back for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But these really cool, interesting plants, um, varieties and species sometimes feel like they're maybe lost in the universe a bit. I think that um, there's going to be that small subset of people that really are plantaholics that really get into those subsets and really like those exotics or those specialty plants or the ones that are less well known. And they they love that part of it. And at the same time, I think that this new group of gardeners has emerged that is looking for more utility out of their plants. So not only do they want something that looks good in a landscape, but they want it to do more than that. So they want to be able to eat it or they want it to attract beneficials or something like that. So it doesn't, you know, I I think that that group will, will remain intact, but to a lesser degree on those specialty plants or those, those um, lesser known plants. But I do think that um, if the trade-off is that we attract a larger group of people looking for more functionality in their plants and we end up with more gardeners because of it, I think that's the better option because I don't, I don't really feel like some of those plants are necessarily going away for good. I do feel like their numbers may be diminishing. But then again, you think about uh, at the turn of the 19th century, 90, there's only about 10% from what I understand some numbers from some companies I've looked, read only about 10% of the seeds that are grown today or the varieties available today, for example, with edibles, are around versus, you know, 90% have gone away or have become extinct or lost from a little over 100 years ago, you know? So with the breeders and the growers and the innovations, um, you know, we just, there's, there's just not as much room for all of that anymore. So where does the attention go? It goes to innovation. And if that promotes more gardening, then, um, you know, I, in the big picture, I'm, I'm okay with that, you know? And, and I think it's something I've spoken with other guests before. 
we got to a point where what many home gardeners didn't see was the drive to create a lot of new cultivars was really just a drive to try to create sales. It was just the new fill in the blank variety. It was new, 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 new. When really a lot of times they weren't this substantial breakthrough. Now there were, of course, along the way when you're talking of, you know, literally tens of millions of plants, it, it did happen. But it almost feels like, Joe, we're having a bit of a, a reshifting of the deck in general in, in the world of gardening and horticulture. A lot of the, the nurseries yeah. that I work with feel like they're starting to look at it a little bit differently. Um, the time of independent garden centers trying to compete mm. with big box mm. stores is clearly, right. I think we can all agree that battle is over. Uh, mm. <laughs> you know, sadly, they didn't, they didn't win if their only way to compete was to try to be the same thing. Yeah. And now we do have all these new people. So I think now for people like myself and, and you, I guess here's the other big question. There's a lot of voices, Joe, and I'm going to say this very delicately. <laughs> there are a lot of voices in the world of gardening and horticulture because everyone has a platform. Mm-hmm. Now, this is also, though, led to, and I get this question, I'm sure you get this question constantly, is the mm-hmm. conflicting information thing. Ugh. And you and I have both had guests on over the years, even recently, and one guest says, no-till, never-till compost or amendments into your soil when you're planting something. And then three weeks later, you have another guest on who says the opposite. Mm-hmm. And I can feel from an audience perspective, from just a either new or experienced gardener, them going, what gives? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have this person on who said this and this person on that said that. So how do we create some kind of safety net? for people, Joe? Or is it just they're going to learn on their own? They're going to experiment. They're going to try it this way. They're going to try it that way and see what works. Well, I don't think I'm going to be as delicate about this one as you were, yeah. but um, I, I get very frustrated with that because as, as somebody that's a science-based horticulture or horticulturalist and media person who, uh, you know, I was, I was a horticulture guy before I was ever a media person. It's just that I was fortunate enough to be picked by DIY to be the host of the television show. But my background wasn't TV. It was horticulture. Um, but because of the accessibility these days, as you know, you know, hey, if it's on the internet, it must be true, right? Well, because anybody can put anything out there, it used to be just blogs and now it's video. And when you're searching for YouTube and you put in a term, God only knows what yes. videos are going to rise to the top. And you know what? I hate to say it, but sometimes it's not the quality of the information that rises to the top, but it's the visual appeal of that host or, you know, what they're wearing or not wearing or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's very, it's, cli- it's clickbait, right? It, it, it's, it, it it's, clickbait. it's interesting because, you know, there are, there are other very polarizing uh, content fields, Joe, mostly politics, where people argue this point, you know, vehemently at the moment. But I, I don't know if people are always thinking about it in relationship to gardening information, but, but people. Let me tell you, the amount of clickbait that's out there Mm -hmm. in a nearly, uh, I've used the word in the past, Joe, predatory way almost Mm -hmm. to get people's attention is staggering, staggering. Um, And the only thing I guess I see it as, I I give these people some credit for just being opportunist. And it's almost like they were first on the field 
with some of this content. But I'll tell you, people, it's bad. It's not good. Um, so much of it. Yeah, I, I would say hopefully, and not everybody's like this, but hopefully the majority of people seeking the information are smart enough to, to discern themselves or put some filters on or try to do a little bit homework on who is this person providing this information. Because just because they have a phone and they have a YouTube account doesn't necessarily make that information right. And I think, you know, when you can provide science-based information to back up whatever it is you're talking about, that's a good place to start. And I will be the first to say that there's not just one right way to garden or to do things. There's a number of different applications for almost anything that you can do for the most part. But I think there has to be something that backs it up other than the fact that you're saying it's true to make it true. And I think that when you go back to a science-based background on justifying or supporting or being able to document that some other way or reference some other academic or horticultural professional, um, I think that adds a lot of credibility. And the other thing I think is that hopefully people are smart enough to see through the quick clickbait eventually, if they're really seeking the information, they look past those things and they're really um, discerning and what it is that you're trying to provide and how you do it. And what, what are the other things that you've talked about? What else have you written about? You know, what is your, what are your credentials? And so, um, I have a lot to say about that and I'm holding back, but you know, <laughs> Joe, that is one of the things just to, to give you some insight. I was, uh, very shocked would be the word. And for people that follow me across social media, they'll agree with this, uh, in what was going on in this cut flower category. I was very surprised to see that a lot of the very high profile folks involved in it, A, didn't have a lot of experience in the category, and that's not necessarily the worst thing. But what I did see is they were finding a lot of ways to monetize the yeah. information that they were putting out there. And I've often said one of my, my great fears is that we have this new opportunity with social media and content. But what I don't want to see happen is some of the same mistakes of the past. That we get a new person, and they live in Georgia, Joe, or in my case, Tennessee, and we tell them sweet peas are the thing to grow because sweet peas just love it in the South in April and May when it gets to be 95 because that person grows that plant in Washington State. Mm -hmm. And in Washington state, sure, it does great for them. But here it's a very meh plant overall that suddenly we disillusion people through a lot of that content. That's what concerned me a great deal that mm. this wasn't really thoughtfully done content. This was just sort of content that was being positioned to monetize, to, to sell seeds or to sell tubers or bulbs or whatever it might be. Yeah. So do you, do you see that as part of it too, that we're, we're trying to balance this at times what could feel overwhelming to people, especially if you're new to it, with really good content that is from good sources, but at the same time, there's sort of this content of Instagram and content of YouTube where, like you said, it's sort of the pretty picture clickbait kind of thing that many times get people's attention first. Yeah, I think the um, quantity over quality thing has really hurt a lot of industries. And I think gardening definitely falls into that category. Um, 
uh, you know, one of the things I will say though, I guess after I kind of was down on my last comment about, you know, the people that are all the people putting information out there related to gardening that may not necessarily be able to back what they're saying, you know, it, it, it has stimulated a lot more interest. I do think for the reasons I said at the start of this conversation, our audience is growing dramatically right now, thanks to accessibility of content and information, be, albeit, you know, maybe not the best information. We're raising the curiosity level and the interest level, and we're peaking that curiosity. And, and hopefully through the process, you know, the discernment filters come on. But I do think that a lot more people are looking at gardening videos or trying to start gardening themselves these days, or maybe they're growing houseplants. I mean, come on, that's a huge mm-hmm. thing today that, you know, has seen its cycles, but right now it's super hot. And, and um, you know, that's a good thing. And hopefully that evolves into their gardening outdoors too, when they have an opportunity to do that. And along the way, they, they figure out who those people are that are trusted sources for that information. And, you know, then, then we fall into that. But, uh, so from that standpoint, I think I think it's good for everybody that the industry has picked up because of the new interest through the accessibility of information. But then they have the frustration in that who are those messengers and what are they saying? And hopefully people are, you know, their filters are going up and they're smelling something rotten when it should be. And it has been, um, I always pick on them because I just like to pick on them. But uh, people like Michael Durr, some really hardcore horticultural people. Uh, I think we have not seen them real active at all right, <laughs> on right, social right. media. And right. occasionally, um, I'm sure for yourself or myself or anyone that's done this for any period of time, you know, in our world, these people were like luminary names. Yeah. You, you know, Alan Armitage is someone I have a good relationship yeah. with. And, and Alan is one of these people that for me, you know, to use a, a sports analogy for people, this is if like a, a Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle type of person. Um, Hall of Famers. That's yeah. it. Uh, that's it. So it's something that I often urge people to consider. The people who you're, you're listening to, who are producing this content, who's their circle of knowledge? Because anyone that is involved in plants knows this. There's too many to know everything. So you have to have go-to people who in many times are either experts on that specific plant or group or genus, or they can point you towards the person who they think is. And that's why I, I think in always looking at your podcast, at Joe Gardner and Growing a Greener World, I think that's something both you and I share in common that we care about who we have on. It's not just, oh, this person has a popular Instagram account. Let's have them on. This is a person who's this or that. Uh, Does a lot of that go into your time too and trying to figure out like, okay, here's a subject I'd like to talk about. Here's something I want to cover with the audience, but let's make sure we can find somebody that has that kind of credibility and gravitas to the subject. Boy, that is so true you know, as your, as your podcast becomes more and more popular, more and more people want to be on it. And so they're reaching out to you because, you know, they're whatever they, they are pitches, you know, and, and I don't want to come across as a snob or exclusionary or tell them that, you know, I don't even know how to say, you know, no, but thanks. 
But what my method has been is that I create my own idea of podcast topics I want to cover. And then having been in the industry so long, I typically know the top people in that category often, but not always. But then we'll do our research, you know, and I've got a team that helps me with that and my producer and so forth. And so I'll just, you know, I'll pitch, hey, this is the topic I want to talk about. I have a few ideas of people that may be good for that, but I want you to go and, and double check and look at some other people too. So before um, somebody comes to us, to us with an idea, hopefully I've maybe thought of something related to that. And we've already gone out and found that person. And honestly, Steve, I haven't figured out quite how to say, respond to somebody when I just say, look, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I, I don't know how to do that yet. But fortunately, the other thing is we stay pretty far ahead on our editorial calendar yeah. too. So we're way out there and that always helps. Well, it's also one of these, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I reach out to a lot of people, Joe, that I know are super knowledgeable people. And occasionally getting them to come on the podcast or do any kind of content is like pulling teeth. And I always make fun of this because I, I often feel like there was that moment maybe where social media uh, started to become clearly, uh, if not the dominant format, then at least a major player in content that some other people sort of filled the space first. So... As an example, I pick on this one all the time. And if I'm ever killed, by the way, Joe, it was either by a floral designer or someone associated with the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. One of those two people. That Alan Armitage is someone who's not very vocal in that community of cut flower growers, but literally he wrote the book called Specialty Cut Flowers. Hmm. And it was shocking to me. <laughs> and I meet people who are doing small scale flower growing and they have no idea who Dr. A is. Mm. And it's just blown my mind a little. So right. for me, I made it like a bit of a personal mission to, you know, have Alan on a lot, have people see uh, his content and his depth of knowledge, where in the nursery industry, he's incredibly respected, clearly, yeah. uh, and yeah. works with growers. And, and there, there's so much that goes into that. But I think it, it is, like you said, it's this delicate balance between finding the guest that provides information to the audience, but also still has that level of authority and credibility behind them to, to bring that content. Let, let me switch gears with you. What are you excited about, right? Like from a real, like, let's go geek heaven here, Joe. Mm -hmm. What for you, I know you do a ton of raised beds right now. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that something that you see as fundamental for people moving forward? What in that real gardening sensibility in this last year or two has gotten you excited? Just the ability to, uh, to connect with new gardeners for the most part. I am a passionate gardener and I'm a passionate teacher. And so at some point, somebody called me a preacher teacher just because, you know, I want to get the gospel of gardening out to everybody. And however... Wherever I can meet them, I want to be there to meet them. And it's to help them understand that gardening doesn't have to be complicated. You just have to start. And so don't wait until you feel like you know enough to start. The only way you really learn it is to do it and screw up in the process. And it's not a mistake. It's just an opportunity to improve your skills. So if I can ingrain that into their head with something basic, and that for me is gardening fundamentals. So you ask me what I'm excited about. Well. Earlier this year, we launched our online gardening academy and we're teaching online courses. 
And the first course we ever did was called Beginning Gardener Fundamentals because we wanted to reach that audience that was either brand new or they were a year or two or three in and they were just looking to sharpen their skills. And we wanted to provide them the basic tools that they needed to empower them to keep going with it wherever they were in their journey. And so um, to to connect with those people and to be able to do it in a way that you build a community. So, you know, here I had this television background for 18 years, but you're talking to a lens and then it goes out and it goes through the airways and, you know, you don't, who knows when they see it or who they are, you know, eventually you get an email or something every so often, but with social media and the ability to do that in a more of a intimate community, you're interacting and engaging with those people and see, that's what I love. I'd rather have a smaller audience going deeper than a larger audience staying shallow. Well, and one of the the things I got early on that I think is interesting, and I'm sure you come across this frequently too, I had someone ask me uh, about two different plants. And they, their essential question was, well, if I learn about this, will it be applicable to that? Mm-hmm. And I often tell people, you know, it's these fundamentals that everybody wants to sort of step over. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. if you're a good gardener, mm-hmm. it all starts to fall in place for you. And yeah. the difference between growing uh, a Japanese maple and growing a perennial, it starts to not feel that different. Mm-hmm. And that builds your confidence. So yeah. when, you're, when you're working with people, and like you said, I think this immediate response that we get now is so much better and so much more powerful for people and interactive that do you see that still the the most beating drum for us that just to get people that confidence level of understanding those early fundamentals that those are the things that everything else builds off of absolutely when when i wrote my first book called over the fence with joe gardner the subtitle was the why do behind the how to you know, we can teach people how to do something, but if they don't understand why they're doing that, how do they apply that information to the next thing or how do they adapt to it? But when you, you know this, everybody knows this, when you think about it, when you actually understand why you need to do something a certain way, then you can apply that to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing and build on your knowledge rather than just following the cookie cutter recipe that says you need to do steps one, two, and then three. So Yes, the fundamentals and why you do those things. Um, it's essential. And, and um, I think people pick up on that, but I, I beat that drum all the time. So the United States, Joe, is complicated, right? It's a Facebook relationship status. It's complicated. How do you go about that when you're, you're speaking with people? Because oh, clearly gosh. where you're at in Georgia, I mentioned earlier, where you're at in Georgia, where people are at in Washington State, if you're in yep. New England, and I, I joke with my British friends that this is one of the advantages they have. That yes, they do have, you know, climate difference, southwest corner of the country versus up in Scotland. But this country is vast. And right. climatically, soil mm-hmm. composition wise, everything is so different. Have you thought about as you you've created the education series and as you produce content, almost going that direction? Like, do we need to start thinking about regionalizing content to that level? Well, I think, I think there are people that need to regionalize that content, whether it's the local extension services who, in fact, that's oftentimes what I do. And to put it in context again, Steve, you know, my whole life in the public eye with horticulture has been on a national and beyond level, but I, you know, I can't, I can't be 
regionally specific and connect with everybody, but my job is to connect with everybody. So I have to focus on those gardening fundamentals and those principles that are universally true, like right plant, right place, and feed the soil and let the soil feed the plant, and think about your zones and plant appropriate things, and then teach them about stewardship and, and you know, how plants come about in, in organics versus inorganics and all of those things that matter no matter where you live. And then it's a matter of learning about where you live and how you do it differently there. For example, you know, we do travel all over the country and have for 11 years with my show. But um, when I go to Phoenix and talk about gardening in the desert Southwest, that's completely different to somebody living in Maine or Seattle or Miami. So in talking to those people, I, I put myself in the viewer's chair as they're watching. And I try to ask the person I'm interviewing the questions that the person watching wants to know. And then hopefully I can connect the dots. My job is the person is the host is to connect those dots and make it applicable to them at home, no matter where they live. And just to take that, that finish off the example of people that live in Phoenix, you know, one of the points that came through in that television show was that, you know what? Gardening itself is not different in Phoenix. It's just a mindset of when you do it, you know, you have to just change the seasonality of when you plant your tomatoes. But how you do it is pretty much the same. You still need great soil. So, you know, there's more commonality than there are differences. It is always fascinating, Joe, when you follow anyone in the uh, Mountain West, Arizona area. And literally the last month or two, as we record this, is almost like a mini spring for them. Mm -hmm. Roses are in bloom. Things are happening. And it almost has this Southern Hemisphere feel to it for a minute of time. And you mentioned soil. Now here, I'm, we're going to hit a pet peeve of mine, Joe. And okay. I, know, I know you probably get this all the time too. People ask things. And a lot of times people want product recommendations, right? They're like, mm. I need this. Now, one of the issues has been people are looking to add to their soil. They're looking to make it better, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Many times they will start their trip to one of the stores that is a big and a box and they Mm. go there and they have products they call topsoil. Now, 97% of those products in those stores, the number one ingredient is peat moss. All right. How do we direct people in that kind of way that, you know, as you said, you're you're trying to speak towards a, a larger group, a more national group. But yet many times, some of the most easily accessible locations for them to buy products from are, I'll be kind, Joe, and say occasionally they're misleading um, Mm. to that consumer. How have you navigated that when people ask these very specific practical type questions like that? Well, um, as the current spokesperson for the um, U.S. Composting Council and former for the Molson Soil Council, those are two areas near and dear to my heart. And, you know, a lot of, well, all of those products are regionally bagged and shipped, you know, not too far away from where they originated. And um, usually the producer is just putting it into different bags with different brands on it for the most part. You know, maybe a, a tweak here and a tweak there. Uh, and a lot of it is peat-based product. But people that go to the big box stores, more often than not, are not your discerning gardeners unless they just, you know, they need a bagged product for a quick fix or something like that. And, you know, there's a lot of decent products there, but I would say the majority of the people buying those products are weekend warriors and they're just going to buy 
whatever it is they need. And if it looks like it meets all the hot points on the bag as far as the labeling, that's what they buy. And they don't look at the ingredients. They, they don't know what's in there. And the thing about topsoil is if it's not peat moss, it's just semi-composted bark mulch or wood that's, you know, eventually someday will be soil, but it may take another few years to get there. Um, and so, you know, what really is topsoil? Well, when you sell it at a box store in a bag for 99 cents, it's just kind of semi-composted wood. But, um, I, you know, I, that's what makes me sad about independent garden centers and the fact that there aren't enough of them anymore. I certainly understand that the value of land these days makes it very attractive for that IGC owner to sell off to the developer who wants to pay them more money than they'll ever see remaining as an IGC. So I get that. But at the same time, I also encourage my audience wherever I go is that you need to support that small business so they're still there when you need something and you need some expertise and somebody that's passionate about gardening that knows a little bit about it that wasn't selling nails or paint the day before, they're, you know, they're actually pretty knowledgeable about gardening and they can help you. And so those are also the places where if you want a specialty product or something that really is the right product for your job, they've probably got it or if they don't have it, they'll get it for you. And so, yeah. Um, it is one <laughs> of the great things and, and, and Joe, I, this is a time where I will not be as delicate. <laughs> <laughs> that unfortunately, <laughs> so many IGCs, uh, I think for those of you that are listening and viewing that didn't know this, you know, there was this moment after 2008, 2009 housing crisis where the nursery industry and the horticulture industry essentially almost blew up. It was uh, such a devastating factor to it. And during that same time, uh, while independent garden centers were riding some of the waves of U.S. housing growth. Then we had the big box stores growing during that same time. You know, Joe knows that where both of us uh, have lived in areas of the country where Home Depot and Lowe's literally originated. So we've seen them literally pop up all over the place. But so many independent garden centers uh, chose to almost compete with big box stores by running the same type of business. And a lot of them were severely beaten by that. Most of the independent garden centers that are still alive and active today, I would say, are ones that try to do exactly what Joe just mentioned. Be better sources for better product choices and more information. And sadly, there's less of them today. So I, I would echo what Joe said. I, I just told someone recently who asked me a question about sourcing some kind of specific Japanese maple cultivar, Joe, and I was like, go to your local independent garden center, Tell them you're trying to find this. Here's some growers that you could, they could source it from. And if they say no to you, you need to find another independent garden center. But yeah. has that been something as we, we get ready to wrap up? It is sort of tough, right? I think when we talk about our content platform, I think we, we both can agree is uh, heading towards a new and exciting time. But the product part of it is still a little bit of a, a new thing for people buying plants online, getting them shipped to them, that experience is still, I would say, newer for people. And do you think that's where it's going to go? Are, are we going to, just like everything else, Jeff Bezos is going to get all of our money one day, Joe. But is that part of the equation that we still don't have a great answer for people yet? Hey, you, you want this really cool plant. Here's how you buy it. Yeah, I think that it's an evolving industry as far as, you know, how we 
how we make our buying decisions with plants these days. But I will say that, um, you know, if there's a specialty plant that you want and you have to buy it online, then buy it online. But after you've checked with your IGC first, and the thing about it is they've got limited space to sell what they sell. And they're not just selling plants, they're selling hard goods and chemicals and seed packs and all of those other things on a, on a, on a fixed footprint. So they're not going to have everything. And if you're the only person wanting that specialty plant, I probably don't blame them for stocking it as a regular item. I'd love for them to order it for you. So, you you know, you support them. I'm all about supporting that independent business person, especially an IGC. But after you've exhausted your efforts there, um, you know, buy it wherever you need to. But some people are predisposed for the easiest purchase option there is. And so they don't think twice about the, the upstream impact of not supporting your local business owner or that IGC. And the fact that, you know, by not supporting them, they may not be there when you need them next year or the year after. So I hope that, and this isn't true for everybody, but I hope that there are still enough of us out there that recognize that um, it's more than just that single purchase decision. It's, it's a bigger picture. And we play an important role in that collectively with those other gardeners. And so um, hopefully there's enough of that or enough of them or enough of us that we create that sustainability or that viability for that industry to remain intact at a local level, uh, well into the future. Let's segue, Joe, to the cheesy questions. Here we go. Cheesy uh, question time. Plant-wise, what, what was big in 2019 for you? We, every year, as every gardener does, you have that thing that you're real excited about, that you were either surprised by or just it exceeded expectations for you. Yes. Um, you know, I grow a lot of vegetables because I've had big raised bed garden. So most of my time when I'm not on the road is in my food garden. And, uh, you know, I would, mm, gosh, that's a tough one. I like to experiment with a lot of heirlooms. So they're not new. They're just maybe new to me because I haven't grown that variety before. How many tomatoes are you doing, Joe? How many tomatoes uh, are you growing, give or take? 45 plants. Okay. Yeah. And so some are in containers and some are in my raised beds because I try to move them around so they're not living in the same soil every year. But, you know, I, I don't really have um, a specific variety or something new, new. It's just new to me, you know. Uh, so I don't have a good answer for you there because I'm always changing around. But I just, I just, I'm nostalgic in a, in a lot of ways. So I like to try the stuff that's tried and true, just new to me. So any vegetable that you did this year? That you were like, well, those were particularly tasty. Yeah, I did. I did a series of brandy wines. You know, I do the classic brandy wine, but this year I did a, a black brandy wine that I hadn't done before because brandy wines down here in Atlanta, at least for me, have always been disappointing. But this year, uh, I don't know what was different other than, you know, a lot of extra shredded leaf mulch and some good irrigation and so forth. But you know, I think the biggest tomato I grew this year was this black brandy wine that took me two hands to hold up. And it was so flavorful, I can't even, I mean, as I'm talking about them, I'm, I'm having a hard time because my mouth is watering, but uh, I can't wait to try that again. And then I tried some new varieties to me, like uh, Dr. Weish's uh, Yellow, which was another amazing one, because I typically tend to the black or the dark varieties. But um, through my connection with my friend, Craig LaHoulier, who's a prolific heirloom tomato grower. 
you know, he convinced me that you can't tell the flavor of a tomato by its color. So even a even an heirloom green tomato in a blind taste test, you wouldn't know if it's green or red or purple or black or yellow or whatever. And so I did some of that too. And I uh, I have to concur. I was pleasantly surprised that I am um, I'm no longer a color snob when it comes to the tomatoes that I grow. Do you think Southern gardeners? are maybe rediscovering a little bit because there was this moment I felt, Joe, that everybody was like, it's so hot. It's so humid. It's so hot. It's so humid. And we were maybe looking at it as a negative thing. And now that maybe people are going, oh, wait a second. We can grow yeah. a lot of things here. The problems of further northern latitude gardeners, like places like up in Minnesota, where this growing season is so short, yeah. Versus here, where it's just like, it can really be prolific if you just have those fundamentals. And it is the fundamentals. And I have to remind people that, look, you know, it's not necessarily easy to grow tomatoes, you know, to, to full production in the summertime in the Southeast. It's hot, it's humid, tomatoes are disease prone, and they have plenty of pests. And, you know, you have your work cut out for you. But if you do a lot of those fundamentals with good soil and drip irrigation and plenty of mulch and try to stay ahead of the disease cycle and get an early enough start, you can get a heck of a harvest before everything does end up going south on you by August for me. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit, you know, as, as good of a tomato grower as I think I am, I'm still not anywhere near in control of what ultimately happens. And so I just apply those fundamentals and do the best I can while I can until, you know, I lose, <laughs> I lose the battle. But I'm never going to win the war. I'm just going to lose those battles because I'm going to just, you know, uh, fortify and, and start over the next season. But I think it's just educating those people that live in those areas to let them know so they you set the expectations and so they're, what they see coming is more realistic than just this uh, you know fantasy that never comes to fruition. Joe, I appreciate it. You keep educating people. I'll keep educating people. And like every year, we should do like a state of the gardening conversation between it. the two of us to see if we're both yeah. doing our jobs or not let's do it i love that i love that dialogue so let's make sure we do that i walk the cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes and I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way I never want to leave this state of Yeah.
this brand new ham on But they're just whispers way up here They got no rhyme for the reason why it's wrong But there's still this burning in my ears So for you to be